I do want to uh, encourage you in this way, that this morning we're preaching from one of the shortest books of the Bible, so therefore the message can't be all that long. The problem is, it's also one of the most complicated letters. (laughs) It's steeped in Jewish tradition, steeped in Jewish history, and so we're going to we're going to do our best to communicate clearly the message of Jude, which really stretches all the way back to, uh, to the earliest days of the Jewish people. He's drawing on examples that we don't have direct connection with, but his audience does. And so that makes it difficult, at, to say the least. But I do think it's very profitable. I want to bring a message this morning entitled, God's judgment against apostasy is certain. I know that you may not see it in our day immediately. When false teachers stand and proclaim false gospels, they're not struck dead with lightning. Though I do think some die of unnatural diseases and some die in tragic accidents which are ordained of the Lord. Most of the time in our day, we don't see false teachers die immediately. And it might be easy for you and for me to begin to think there's no judgment coming. I think that's the problem in Jude's day. I think that's the problem in Peter's day. Is that people in the church were beginning to say, what retribution will there be for these people? When will they get what's coming to them? I think there was also a grave and real mourning of the people of God because of these men. In other words, I think that as I preach this message, I hope to communicate to you the emotion I think Jude has, which is anger, which is a desire that God's character be upheld, that the gospel be exonerated from any false doctrine, and that the justice of God be served on the heads of anyone who would dare to change the gospel once delivered to the saints by the apostles. That is his emotion. He is angry. And yet, I think he is weeping. Weeping not because God dares to judge men, but weeping because their judgment is final. Their judgment is certain. Their judgment is eternal. Jude understands there is no escape for those who commit apostasy. There is no hope of salvation There is only the fire of hell which will never be quenched and where the worm never dies. There's two emotions which in our human minds seem to almost contradict because when we're angry and not under the possession of the Holy Spirit at the moment, our attitude is far from broken and humble and mourning and merciful and weeping. But I'm telling you it's possible to both desire the justice of God and hurt because people will go to hell. It's possible. 
under the sovereign hand of God, may we all have Jude's passion and Jude's love for the gospel and his mercy for the sinner. Growing up on a farm gives you unique perspectives. Perspectives that uh, you can't gain in any other vocation. You know, I have gained insight into some of the examples of Scripture through my days on the farm. Now, while I was on the farm, I often wanted to get off the farm because of the hard labor, because of the hot days, because of the lack of money. Some of you have been on a farm, and you understand, and you're chuckling a little to yourself that you're not there today, too. I know. I know the feeling. But there were good days on the farm. And there were a lot of lessons to be learned on the farm. I learned one of the lessons uh, that is presented to us by Jude while on the farm of my father in his cotton field on Sand Road. Now, you don't know where Sand Road is, but I'm going to draw a picture for you. It's right up next to the Lux Palala Creek. That's an Indian name, and it is pronounced Luxapalala. It's very difficult to say. It is a muddy, nasty stream, which I've cooled myself in many times, uh, and which we irrigated our crops out of because in sandy ground you need lots of water. You see, we didn't live in a wilderness like the people in, in Jerusalem or in the area surrounding Jerusalem, but we lived in something almost seemed like it at times because when we didn't get rain, in that sandy ground we lost all our moisture and our crops began to wilt and wither. And I can remember many days working in that 100-acre field. That's hard enough for some of you to imagine. Think about your lot your house sits on is probably less than an acre probably three-quarters of an acre, something like that. Think of that. Maybe 125 times the lot you live on. Okay? 125 of those. So it's a big place. And I can remember in the heat of the August sun, and this is something you people up here in the hills have nothing in common with this, and that's oppressive river heat. I'm talking about when the temperature might be 96 and the heat index might be 112, 115, 119, and you feel like your lungs are going to collapse. That's the kind of heat I'm talking about. And my dad had grown up in that culture and in that, that uh, environment all of his life, and he was very accustomed to it. And I had grown accustomed to it. The difference between my dad and I at that time was I had to go to two-a-day football practice in August, and he didn't. Though he expected me to be there as soon as the morning practice let out at 8.45 to go to work until about 3 in the evening when I had to be back at practice at 4.30. He didn't, he didn't have a lot of mercy because there was work to be done. And I can remember one particular day like it was yesterday in that field, toting irrigation pipe, feeling like I was about to pass out. And looking up at the end of the field and seeing clouds roll in. And your heart kind of feels encouraged. And you start to breathe a little easier. And you think, it's going to rain. It's going to cool off. And the wind's blowing. And you think, here it comes. It's going to rain. It's going to cool off. It's going to water the good crop. Everybody's going to be relieved from the heat. And then much to your dismay, within a few minutes, those crowd, clouds which looked so promising 
deliver no rain. They hold a lot of promise that the clouds cannot fulfill because they have no moisture, no rain, no precipitation. They don't relieve your heat. They don't relieve the oppression of the crop from the heat. But it had all the promise of it. Do you see the example? And Jude calls false teachers waterless clouds. I think I know what he means. Many people, unfortunately, in our day and throughout church history have sat under false teaching thinking it held a promise which it would one day fulfill and it never fulfills the promise. It's worthless. It's fruitless. It's waterless. It's driven like the waves of the sea. It's twice dead to be uprooted. Do you understand Jude's anger towards false teachers? He has anger in two regards. One is anger that anyone would change the wording of the gospel or the practice of the gospel. And secondly, because that goes against the honor of God. And secondly, I believe Jude is angry as a shepherd, as a pastor, that anybody would put people, sheep, God's people under waterless, fruitless, profitless teaching. And yet, the church has always suffered from false teachers. It's always suffered from them. And we're promised by Jude and by 2 Peter and by Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that they're not going to grow, decrease, they're only going to increase as the days go. I know we got a little ring going here, okay? And just hang with me. I don't know if you can hear it. It's driving me a little batty. My mind's trying to concentrate. We've got a new sound system, a new building, a lot of kinks. We just need to pray God will allow me to think. <laughs> so we have this anger and this mercy being displayed by Jude in this little letter. And I, and I feel a little bit of his emotion. And I've been through a little bit of that waterless cloud syndrome. I can connect with that or with fruitless trees. I've even seen that in my life. Jude is a letter to the churches that's often neglected when we study the New Testament. Probably because it's so short. Probably because it speaks of things that seem mysterious to us. They're far-reaching. We can't really grasp it. It's history from generations and generations ago. I mean, the history talked about in Jude was old when Jude wrote about it. And now we're another 2,000 years separated from where he was in another culture, in another language. And so I understand that this book gets neglected. I can admit that I have neglected it often in my study. Jude contains 25 verses, and we see that the main subject, the main thing being talked about, the main topic of discussion for Jude is apostasy. Now, I need to define that, okay? And I know some of you may know what that is and some may not. Apostates are those who have turned from their faith. They have denied what they once confessed. You understand. They're not just unbelievers. They're just not pagans. They're not just people who come to church once in a while, but don't really know if they believe. These people claim Christ and then deny Him. That's an apostate. And apostasy is the act of doing that. It's the, it's the verb form of the noun. Apostasy, when you commit that, 
is a grave sin. It is a grave sin. And Jude spends this little letter talking about that. And as we think about who this author might be, there are five Judes mentioned to us in the New Testament, and only one fits the description here. Let's mark Judas out right now. Judas Iscariot. Let's just forget him, okay? Because Jude, Jude is short for Judas. The person who wrote this letter, his name is Judas. And the King James Version, when they translated it into English, refused to write Judas as the author of the letter in the Bible because of their disdain for the one who would dare betray Jesus Christ. And I think properly so. It could be confusing, couldn't it? If you were just surface reading. So they wrote Jude. But his name is Judas. It's not Judas Iscariot. He is an apostate. He is a good example of an apostate, but he didn't write this letter. He wasn't alive to write this letter. He committed suicide. The others are cursory mentions of people named Judas that were active in the church. And, of course, you have Judas, who was not Iscariot, who was also uh, uh, a disciple. That's a possibility. But look at the introduction. We're not going to preach on these verses. I just want to explain it to you. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. That is the key to knowing who this is. This is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. This is the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of James. And you say, if you were the brother of Jesus, why wouldn't you just say, I'm the brother of Jesus? It would give you authority. I think it speaks to his unbelievable humility. He and James both could have claimed, the writer of the letter of James could have claimed that this same thing as he wrote to his audience. But instead they called themselves slaves to Jesus Christ and brothers to one another. It also communicates they're not full brothers, are they? They're half-brothers. They are the sons of Joseph and Mary. Jesus is only the son of Mary. He has no human father. His father is God the Father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so they're half-brothers. And so Jude is setting himself apart. I'm the brother of James. The half-brother of Jesus. The slave. Doulos is the word. We, don't, we, we, I, we always call it servant. I think because we're afraid to use the term slave. Look, the word means slave. That's what it means. Slave. And this is an honored title. Not a dishonorable title. He's saying, I'm, I'm honored to serve Christ with all that I am, with all that I possess, with all of my days. I am a slave to Him. His grace and His mercy and His goodness. What a beautiful picture and what an introduction. Jude wrote this book, I believe, between the years 65 and 66, which means it was written just during the same time frame as Second Peter. So we have some similarities there. And there's similar topics covered in the two letters. We have this little letter, 25 verses, written by the half-brother of Jesus in the decade of the 60s A.D., warning the church about the apostasy which is there, in their midst, as Dave said. Peter says it's coming. Jude says it has arrived. It's here. It's, commit, it's happening in our presence. And in, the, in these last days, it's going to get worse. That's from the time of the cross all the way to the time of His return, the last days. And it's going to increase, not decrease. 
He was writing for to a group. Who was he writing to? He's writing to a group of believing Jews. He calls them beloved. Notice in verse 3. Beloved. That's a title reserved for the saints. Beloved, but they're a group of Jews that are under attack from some of the same enemies of the church. These apostates, who I believe are grafting together the Judaism of the New Testament day and Christianity and calling it a new gospel. The apostles only told you half the story. They told you about Jesus. What they forgot to tell you is you have to obey the rules, regulations, and festivals of the Jewish people to be a Christian. I believe that's the apostasy Jude is railing against. The combination of the two faiths. Judaism and Christianity. There was other types of apostasy which aren't significant to this. Paganism, dropping back into paganism, just simply dabbling with Judaism, converting wholesale back to Judaism. That's even happening in our day where people are leaving the Christian church and going back to Judaism. That is an apostasy. That is not the call of Christ on our lives. We must be careful. Jude warns them. Look what he says in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Fight and war for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then in verse 4, he describes these false teachers. Look what he says. They've crept in unnoticed. And they are designated... Long ago, they are vessels of wrath. It's the same type wording that Paul uses in Romans chapter 9 to talk about the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The vessels of wrath. Jude's saying these people are creeping in. They are not intending to convert to Christianity. They are intending to infiltrate the ranks and lead people away to destruction because they were prepared. They are fulfilling what they were created for. Destructive lives that lead to ultimate and eternal destruction. That's the way he describes them. Sensual men who have denied their master. So it's not a very appealing description. We have the author, we have the date, we have the audience, we have the subject of his writing. Our focus this morning is going to be right in the center of this little letter, 5 through 16, as we talk about God's judgment against apostasy is certain. That's the title of this message. Three points, which you can write down and then follow through as we go through this outline. First of all, God has always judged those who reject His offer of grace. Secondly, we're going to see that apostates are characterized by pride, greed, sexual sin, and fruitless lives. That's the characteristics of an apostate. And finally, God's judgment of apostate teachers will be eternal. It will be eternal. Let's look together at this first point in our outline. God has always judged those who reject His offer of grace. And He gives us in verse 5 a first example. Notice that it says that the Lord, in your translation it may say, the Lord... Save the people from Egypt, right? The ESV did such a good job. You need to buy an ESV Bible. You need to purchase one. There's a new study Bible that just came out this week by the ESV writers. 
Unbelievable. I mean, the wealth of teaching in that little book will replace your library, probably. It's fabulous. They did a much better job here because, as you notice, when Dave read, and as you looked on the screen, it didn't say, Lord, did it? Who did it say? Jesus delivered them from Egypt. You see, God has always judged people who reject His grace offered through His Son. And He's been offering that grace through His Son since the Garden of Eden. And we find it in Jude that they were delivered from Egypt, which is a grace. It is a grace of God which brought them out of Egypt. And the story of their rejection of this grace is captured for us in Numbers. So hold your place in Jude and turn to Numbers quickly. I want to, these stories are so important to the message that I don't always have you turn, but today I am having you turn to these stories because you're probably not very familiar with them. And they are essential to understanding what Jude's point is. God has always judged those who reject God's offer of grace. He has always done it. The delivery of the people from the bond of slavery in Egypt was a type of grace given through Jesus Christ. And the people of Israel wholesale rejected that offer in Numbers 13 and 14. They sent spies into the land to get a report. And the spies came back and two reported that we should follow God's command and take the land. Don't pay attention to the giants. Don't pay attention to the natural uh, things that are barriers to us. Follow God, Caleb and Joshua. The only two, ten witnesses, stood and said, if we go there, they will kill us. There are giants in the land. Look at these grapes. I'm telling you, this is a plentiful, fertile land, but it is guarded by the worst of men and the greatest of warriors. We will die if we go there. Okay? Now that's bad enough, but I want to emphasize a little out because we don't have time for the whole story. Look at Numbers 14, beginning in verse 1. After the report is given, look what the people of Israel did. They rejected God's grace. You need to get that. Take that home with you. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. They rejected God's offer of grace through His Son. They said it had been better to die in sin in Egypt. Egypt is a representation of sin. It always is in the Old Testament. The old way of life. Jude uses this example because it is the perfect example for what some people in the church are doing even today, and that's rejecting the grace of God and returning to false hope and a false life that leads to destruction. It would have been better if we had died there or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing unto us into this land? To fall by the sword? Doubt. Unbelief. Rejection. That was the characteristic of these people. Would it not, they repeated again, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? It's not enough to say we shouldn't have come out of Egypt. Now these people are saying, we're going to go back. That's what we need to do. Let us choose leaders 
and go back to Egypt. That, my friends, is apostasy. And Jude wants you to know what it looks like. So he gives you a picture. When you say, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. And you come into the church and you grow, seemingly grow in your faith. And you come to a point of either trial, tribulation, good times can lead to apostasy. In other words, wealth and prestige can lead to apostasy. There's no one root to this. But when you have shown some beginning stages of repentance and then you dare say, I don't want Jesus anymore. I'm going back to my old way. That is apostasy. And Jude says, eternal judgment waits those who not only do that, but I want you to notice something. Those ten spies, those I believe would have been the leaders to take them back, those are equivalent to false teachers. It's the same sin. Because not only have they rejected the faith personally, now they want to take everybody back with them. That's apostate teaching. And it's rampant in our churches. It's rampant in our local churches. It's rampant on the TV set. When someone adds to or takes away from the message of the gospel and calls it the gospel, they are guilty, at least in that one moment, of, a, of what I would call apostasy. Now, is it a life of apostasy? We'd have to see. Because you might be in error, right? None of us are perfect. There may be points of the gospel I don't fully understand or live. And yet, we're going to see what characterizes these men, what sets them apart as lifelong apostates in just a moment. But don't ever forget that this is the example. They are judged. Look at what God does in verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Moses begged for their lives. Don't kill them, Lord. He said, okay, I've pardoned them. But look what he says. But truly as I live. In other words, eternally. That's why when people say, well, the people who died in the wilderness, will they be in heaven? I say, no. That whole generation apostatized and now have been locked away to judgment. All of them except Joshua and Caleb and Moses all the people who gathered in front of those witnesses and said, let's go back to Egypt, they all died in the wilderness. And God says, as long as I live, how long will He live? <laughs> Forever. Eternally. As long as I live. And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who I have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times, they rejected Him ten times, and have not obeyed My voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. It's eternal. They're gone. And none of those who despise Me shall see it. But My servant Caleb, notice that it says, because he has a different spirit, he's regenerate. So right now, you may be scared to death. I hope you are scared out of your mind. Am I one of these people who walks away from the faith? And I want to tell you, if you have the Spirit of the living God in you, you are a regenerate believer. You cannot finally turn from the faith and die in judgment. You can't do it. He won't let you. 
He will persevere you till the end. But if you're here and you say, I don't know that I have God in me or not, let me warn you. You need to fear. You need to tremble. You need to think about the reality that hell is coming. Judgment is coming for everyone who rejects God's grace offered in His Son. And there is no relief from that rejection. So we see their apostasy. We see God's judgment and it is eternal. Then He turns in verse 6 to the angels that left their God-given position and followed Satan's rebellion. Now this one's a little more difficult, okay? I know some of you are thinking, that's Ezekiel 28. It's Isaiah 14. None of the texts given to us in the Bible fully satisfy what Jude's talking about here. None of them. I mean, it's just, it's just not complete. The story isn't. But we know Satan fell, and we know he took a number of the beloved angels with him. They fell from their position of authority. And they became Satan's servants. Their rebellion... Though this is difficult, their rebellion was eternal. They left heaven. They left their authority. They left their position. And they forever have been locked away for judgment. Locked away in chains, he describes. Look what it says in verse 6. They left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. In other words... Don't get the picture that they're chained in the core of the earth. I've heard lots of messages about that. That's not what Jude's saying at all, I don't think. What he's saying is these angels, all of the rebellious angels, are chained to destruction. They are tied to eternal destruction. They cannot return to their former place of authority and position before God. I don't think, in other words, it restricts them from roaming on the earth. I don't think it restricts them from being very active in their rebellion to this day against Jesus Christ and against God the Father. They're not locked away. They're simply locked into judgment. They can't ever get out of that. There's no relief. It is eternal judgment. The punishment is eternal. God has always judged those who reject His grace and it's always been an eternal punishment. And then we turn to the third and final example of God's judgment of those who reject His grace. Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 7. Look what it says. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, there were five in total in the Jordan Valley. They were judged. Okay, there's a little discrepancy. That's in Genesis 18 through 19. God showed His grace to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you say, how? Because they were the greatest cities of their day. God had raised them to an exalted position. You don't even get the other cities' names, do you? It's just said there are other cities there. Sodom and Gomorrah were raised and exalted. Sodom and Gomorrah were prosperous. When Lot and Abraham looked out over the land and Abraham said, choose whichever way you will go, what did Lot say? It says of Lot that he saw how beautiful the valley of Jordan was, Sodom and Gomorrah, and he headed that way. God had graced them. They had been raised above all other cities. And yet they rejected His grace. How did they reject it? Look in verse 7. 
through sexual immorality, through unnatural desires. And hetra is the Greek there, which means not like, not like. The flesh which they were after was not good. It was unnatural. There's a great discussion. I don't want to sidetrack us on it. I just want to say I don't believe this is the description of the angels in Genesis 6. I don't think those were angels in Genesis 6. Notice, notice in the ESV, again, much superior, I believe, to a lot of our translations. They're all good, but this one does a good job. Look what it does. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Who was guilty of unnatural desires? Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities like them. He's not saying the angels. He's not referring back to the angels having this lustful desire for women. He's saying the cities there had an unnatural desire for things which are against God's Word. And we got a lot of children present. I'm walking very carefully. In other words, they had desires. Men, not for women. Women, not for men. It was unnatural. And God judged it. God judged it. It was an apostasy. It was a rejection of the grace of God. That's what it was seen as. And so they, they too faced eternal judgment. In other words, God said, I'm going to rain down judgment on them and there will never be a city in that place again. It's eternal. When Abraham looked out over the horizon in the morning after Lot left and the angels brought down the judgment of God, he saw a sulfurous smoke rising up like the pit of hell, which was unquenched. It was, it was, the, the statement is, it's eternal. It's gone. God always judges those who reject His grace. And His judgment is always eternal. Now Jude's made his point in that regard. And now he goes to talk about apostates. Apostates are characterized, the second point, by pride, greed, sexual sin, and fruitless lives. Those who are false teachers will always claim a divine authority. Notice what it says in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, Joel said, false prophets, Joel the prophet said, they prophesy by dreams, not from God though. They're false dreams. They're figments of their imagination. Some people go so far as to say in their apostasy, they've been driven mad, crazy. I don't want to go that far necessarily, but I do think they're having dreams which are not from God. And they're using it as divine authority. God told me this in a dream. Therefore, it's right. I don't disregard God's ability to communicate with His people through prayer and through His people and through the Word and even through, and even through circumstances and events in our lives. But when you have an event, a circumstance, a dream, any of the like that contradict the Word of God, it is not of God. And there are many in our churches who are apostates and they are basing their doctrine on their personal revelation, which is contrary to God. And we're going to see in a moment 
some of their characteristics. Those who are false teachers or apostate can be characterized by natural desires. In other words, it's not just a weekend fling they're having. This is their desire every day, all day. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all they like, they, all they, all that they like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. I think here we have the spiritual mind and the carnal mind. And the carnal mind or the fleshly mind cannot receive the things of the Spirit. They blaspheme the things of the Spirit because they don't understand it. Because their mind's not regenerate. And they scoff and mock at it. And they would even say, you hold that book up so high in authority? How do you know that's God's Word? What makes you so confident that we can trust a historic faith? They mock the things they cannot understand which are only spiritually discerned. And they turn to things which are very carnal in nature. Their minds can perceive these things, but that's like an unwielding beast, Jude says. In other words, their animalistic instincts is what they turn to. And in Jude's day, it led to adulterous, fornicating, drunken, gluttonous crowds which led many astray. It's happening in our churches. Many churches today are ripe, ripe for the taking for an apostate because they have unregenerate membership, they have no stiff call for the gospel from the pulpit, and those false teachers will come in and lead people out by the dozens into their sinful, pleasure-seeking, humanistic ways. And you'll hear phrases like, I've never felt so good about my religion before. I've never felt so free. Unrestrained. Because could it be that you're following what comes most natural to you? And might I tell you what comes most natural to you will be your judgment. It will go for your judgment, not for your good. Anyone who encourages your natural desires is a dangerous person because our natural desires are sinful, the Word of God says. Those who are false teachers are filled with pride like Cain. Now, he drops into some more analogies. Cain was a prideful person. And how was he prideful? He disregarded God's call for blood sacrifice. He rejected part of the gospel. He wanted to do it his way. He brought fruits of his labor, and he said that's the equivalent to killing a lamb. It's the same thing. My brother's a shepherd, and I'm a farmer. God will receive it. It was another gospel. It was another gospel. He says, you have the pride of Cain. If you're a false teacher, they walk in the way of Cain. They abandon themselves, he goes further, into for the sake of gain, like Balaam. Balaam, in Numbers 22 through 25, you get Balaam. I mean, how would you like to be infamous in the Scripture? How would you like to be famous because you were rebuked by your donkey? That's Balaam. Balak sent for Balaam because the people of Balak was the king of the Moabites 
And he looked and the people were plentiful. The Israelites were going to kill him and take his throne. And he sent for the prophet Balaam and said, come and curse these people. And Balaam looked strong in the beginning, didn't he? He said, no, no, I can't do that. I can only speak what God tells me to speak. He sent the messengers away. They came again and said, Balak wants you to come. Won't you just come? He'll give you whatever you want if you'll curse these people. He said, not for all the gold and silver that Balak has in his houses would I go against God's Word. I'm saying, I'm with you, Balaam. Preach it, son. Stand on God's Word. And then you see, he mounted his donkey and went with him. Where are you going? He headed to his apostasy. Cain disregarded God's Word. Balaam found a way around God's Word because he didn't want to do it. He went on his donkey. His donkey, this is funny, kids. You'll want to hear this. The donkey saw an angel that Balaam couldn't see and it crushed Balaam's foot. And he whipped it. And the angel moved and got in a narrow place. And when they turned the corner, there he was, and it scared the donkey to death. And he almost threw Balaam off. Balaam smoked that donkey again, man. What's wrong with you? And he went, the angel disappeared, and it went a little farther. It peeked out from behind a rock, and the donkey jumped again. And Balaam began to curse that donkey. Talked ugly to it. Kind of like your dad might sometimes when he's working on a piece of equipment that won't do what he wants it to. I hope not, but that might be the case. And God unloosed the tongue of a donkey. Kids, the donkey talked. And it said, why are you hitting me? Have you not owned me since I was a little donkey? Have I ever acted this way before? And then God removed the blinds on Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of God and he apologized to the donkey. Read that story. It's a good story. Numbers 23 through 25. Read it today. You'll be encouraged by it. But listen, Balaam got there and he stood strong three times saying only what God told him to say. And after that, he went to Peor and he convinced the Moabitess women to go down and to make a relationship with Israelite men and led them astray. And God judged him immediately because he found a way around God's Word. God wouldn't say what Balaam wanted him to say, so he found another way to get it done. That's happening in our churches all the time, isn't it? I know that's what the Bible says, but I'm not going to do it. I want to do it my way. Be careful. You skate on thin ice. It might lead to your destruction. Because you might be following the sin of Cain, of pride. You might be following the sin of Balaam, which led to greed. You might be following the rebellion of Korah. Cain disregarded God's Word. Balaam went around God's Word. And Korah ran right over the top of God's Word. We have his story recorded for us in Numbers In, verse, in chapter 16, Korah led 250 of the Israelites astray. Korah was the cousin of Moses. And he said, who made Moses in charge? And who made these priests in charge? I want to be a priest. The people are priests unto themselves. And he incited a rebellion against Moses and against God. 
He ran right over God's Word. When he said, who put Moses in charge? I'm sure Moses said, God did. You think I wanted to do this? You think I volunteered for this job? You got another thing coming. Who made these priests priests? Aaron's back there saying, look, buddy, I've lost sons over this deal. Don't tell me I'm excited about it. It's a hard job you're asking for. Korah said, we're all priests. We don't need you and we don't need God's Word. God opened the ground and swallowed those 250 people into the depth of judgment immediately. And it may not happen to you immediately. It may come in years to come, but it's coming. Judgment is sure for anybody who rejects the grace of God offered through Jesus Christ and leads others to their destruction. God will not fail in His judgment. To withhold judgment would be unjust and God is just. False teachers are therefore prideful, greedy, and rebellious. That's their character. That's who they are. False teachers are worthless, defiling, fruitless men who should be rejected by God's church and pitied. Pitied. Because hell is an awful place filled with misery absent of the goodness of God. And their judgment is eternal. Look what Jude calls them. We're going to run through these quickly. Jude calls these men hidden rocks or blemishes, your text might say, in the love feast. The love feast was a time where the rich and the poor gathered together and they equally feasted among themselves and celebrated the goodness of God and Jude said these false teachers come in. I think they, they are equivalent to what Paul was talking about in Corinth. Remember? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he warned them about these who came into the love feast and got in the front of the line and ate to their fill and the poor people stood at the back and had nothing to eat. You see, false teachers feel, fulfill their natural desires. They care not for the sheep. They feed themselves, not others. They promise good things, but they never deliver. They're like those clouds in the cotton field that look like rain and never produce. They're like driving wind of the waves that crash and destroy instead of carry and guide. They're destructive. They're selfish. They're self-centered. They're fruitless. He calls them fruitless trees. They're twice dead, he says. What a description. What a description. And Jesus said in Matthew 15, 13, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. That's what Jude says. He agrees. Judgment's coming. It's eternal if you reject the grace of God and lead others to their doom. Jude says they are vessels prepared for eternal destruction. Look what he says. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. That's not they might go. That means they're going. And that's why our hearts should be broken. Our hearts should be broken because 
it is eternal. God's judgment against apostates finally will be eternal. In verses 14 through 16, he quotes for us this story given by Enoch. I believe a verbal story. I'm not certain it came from First Enoch. It might have, but I'm not certain of the validity of that document. But I do believe it was a teaching that passed down through the generations of the Jewish people. And he says, Enoch prophesied saying, false teachers are coming and the judgment of God is coming with ten thousands, myriads, Daniel calls them, of saints coming with Jesus. And when he comes, he comes to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Look at the way he talks about this judgment. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are ungodly men who have rejected the grace of God. And the judgment is sure. Jesus' judgment is complete over every deed, over every word, over every thought. Jesus will judge the apostate. Jesus' judgment is against all who follow their sinful desires and deny His grace. He says to end, look in verse 16, these are malcontents, grumblers, following their sinful desires. They're loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. God's judgment is sure. Hell is the destiny of all who reject Christ and the grace offered through Him. And though it is true, and I believe it, my heart is saddened. Because it's quite possible that there are those in this church who will face this judgment. And right now you may live under the false perception that you will escape. The people did not escape when they rebelled against God in the wilderness. And neither will you. The angels did not escape when they followed Satan in his rebellion, and neither will you. That's what Jude's saying. You will not escape. Cain did not escape. Balaam did not escape. Korah did not escape. You will not get around God's judgment if you reject the grace of God. And so I call you to accept it. Accept His grace in Christ. You say, I don't know how. I'm not good enough. The great thing about the Gospel is the Gospel does not call you to be good enough. It tells you up front you are not good enough. And yet, says, salvation is in Christ. Purchased and paid for completely. And free to all who believe in Him. You say, how can I believe? How can I believe in Him? I've never seen Him. I've never touched Him. You believe? As simple as I can tell you is you believe by saying, 
Christ is the way. The only way. There's no hope outside of Him. If I can't have Christ, hell is my destiny. So I cling to Jesus Christ in faith. I believe. I trust. I hold on to Jesus and Him alone. And if He won't save me, if He can't save me, I will not be saved, God. Please save me. It's the heart of repentance. That's the heart of belief. That's the heart of faith. That's the heart that rejects apostasy and claims eternal life in Jesus Christ. And is safe from all judgment. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to be Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't have to be the angels locked up to destruction. You don't have to be the children of Israel in the wilderness. You don't have to be Cain. You don't have to be any of these examples that Jude gives us. You can believe in Him and be saved. And I'm begging God to change your heart now and save you. And it's my hope and my greatest desire that you will be saved. Believer in Christ, in this moment, never get so lazy and lackadaisical in your faith that you think, I'm in. There's nothing left. Don't you think those children delivered from Egypt and through the Red Sea in the wilderness at Jordan thought they were in Canaan as good as gold? And yet they all died in the wilderness. Don't you believe that Balaam said, I prophesied good three times. What's the problem with this one sin? Don't you believe that Sodom and Gomorrah said, we'll have a day to repent. Let's just live and let live. So Christian, in Christ, I'm saying to you, don't relax. Don't give up. Don't let go. Hold fast to the one you have believed in and that you are persuaded will complete what He started before the day of judgment. He will complete it. Let it be your song that on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let that be your thing. Let that be your song. Cling to Jesus Christ and don't give in to the desire to turn from the faith. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, as we draw to a close...